Good morning. This morning we are reading out of Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, the parable of the tenants. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be back. We were out last weekend, as Kerwin mentioned, and had a wonderful time at this conference and um, couldn't wait to get home. And that was not just because we were flying with a two-month-old. It really was because we wanted to get back to our home church. This feels like home for us, and we're so glad to be here. And I hope that you will take the opportunity, if you weren't here last week, to listen to Kerwin's sermon on Psalm 107 from last week. It was an amazing sermon. I love having people in our church, our elders, who can teach and preach and bring the Word of God. In fact, so this conference, there were about 15,000 people at this conference, and a lot of them were pastors. And so I was trying to find a place to eat, and I sat down next to this guy, and we start up this conversation. He's a pastor of a small church up in Wisconsin. And so we're just talking shop and, you know, exchanging stories and stuff, and he said, did you have to preach before you left on Sunday? And I said, no, I've got an elder that preached, and... Uh, He's, he always does a fantastic job, and he looks at me, he goes, i got to get one of those. <laughs> he had preached last week, and he was preaching this weekend, and it's, it's a joy. It's, it's a joy. I, I almost told him, you don't know the half of it with guys that we have in our church like Kerwin and so many others. We're grateful. So I want to start our uh, sermon this morning about this story that Jesus tells with a different story. This story takes place a few hundred years earlier. And in this story, it starts in the middle of the night with a king. In fact, not just any king, the most powerful man in the world at the time is tossing and turning in bed because he's having nightmares. And as he wakes up from these nightmares in cold sweats and screaming in his bed, he calls for his advisors, and he brings the advisors in, and he tells them, you need to find somebody in the kingdom who can interpret these nightmares. So they go and they call all the 
courtiers, they call all the sorcerers, they call the magi, actually, and they bring in the magi and they say, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. But the king says, no, 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 no. You guys have all these books of interpretations and these enchantments and things. I don't want a stock answer. If you can really interpret this dream, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. Well, it turns out none of these people could interpret this dream. And so the order goes out from the king that every magician and sorcerer and dream interpreter and magi in the kingdom is going to be put to death. So as the, as the king's executioner is preparing to go out and put to death all of these people, there's another person in the court, another wise man who wasn't there that night, that begins talking to the executioner and he learns that all they need to do to stay alive is interpret this dream. Well, this, this court advisor was a little bit different than the others. First of all, he was born in a little tiny corner of the world away from this kingdom. Secondly, he had been taken there as a boy, and he had risen up through the court to be one of the king's trusted advisors. But the most unique thing about this other advisor was he did not believe in the gods of Babylon. He actually believed in a more ancient god, a god that was different in the sense that this god claimed to be the one and only true god. And he had a personal name, Yahweh. So he comes into the king's court. And I want to give you a sense of this court because this is Nebuchadnezzar's court. And it is the emblem of power in the world at the time. In fact, they found Nebuchadnezzar's court. It's a little bit south of Baghdad in Iraq. It's in a, a town that's now called Hillal. And this court is massive. In fact, the throne podium that Nebuchadnezzar would sit on is almost as big as this room. And you would go into this court and there were glazed blue bricks on the wall that you would never see anywhere else in the world. And, and this court actually has a connection to our world today. It's about 300 yards from one of Saddam Hussein's palaces in Iraq. It, this court actually has a connection to the ancient kingdoms of the world. It's maybe half a mile from where they think the Tower of Babel was built. For these people and for this young advisor walking into this court, this was the center of the world. And as he walks up to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, O king, I have prayed and I'm going to give you an interpretation of this dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says back to him, you're going to be able to interpret it. He says, actually... There's a God who's going to give you the interpretation of this dream, the God Most High. He says, in the dream, there's a statue, a giant idol statue, and the top of it is made of gold, and the shoulders and the, the chest are made of silver, and the abdomen is made of, or the abdomen is made of iron, and the feet are iron mixed with clay. And these are the kingdoms of the earth, and what you saw in your dream was a stone, which had not been cut by human hands, come careening in and crush the statue, and it was like every piece of the statue dissipated and blew away in the wind, and that one little stone 
became like a great mountain that encompassed the whole earth. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was part pleased by this, but he was also part afraid by this because the interpretation of this dream, Daniel says this, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. You know, these, these Babylonian kings were great PR guys. Because in, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar II, Nebuchadnezzar the Great, there's a shtila, which is a big tablet, and it has his titles on there. Nebuchadnezzar the Great, King of Babylon, King of Akkad, King of the Universe. That was his title. And Daniel says, you have those titles because the God of the universe gave those to you. Another kingdom inferior to you will rise after you. And then a third kingdom of bronze. And then it will rule all over the earth, but it will be conquered by a kingdom as strong as iron. And then, in those days, he says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And that kingdom will break to pieces all the kingdoms in the earth and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever. So Daniel walks into King Nebuchadnezzar and says, there's good news and there's bad news. You have a strong, wonderful kingdom, but its time is limited. And in fact, every kingdom that comes after yours will be limited because the God of the universe in days to come is going to set up his kingdom with his king, and it will grow to encompass the entire world. It will break to pieces every other kingdom, and in the end, it will be the only kingdom that stands. And the stone that you saw is the king that the Lord will put on his throne. So about 600 years later, in that little unknown part of the world, a prophet stands in front of the Pharisees and says, the stone has landed. The stone has landed. The time has come. God has sent his king. See, the genius of Jesus, and I want you to see this for a minute, Jesus is not just a great moral teacher, as in he was just a great person. Jesus is the greatest teacher who has ever lived. It's not just that Jesus was kind of a backwoodsy guy from Nazareth who lived a great life and his followers were brilliant people. Jesus was a brilliant teacher. I'm, I'm reading a book right now called The Surprising Genius of Jesus by Peter Williams. And in the intro, he says, if he wasn't Jesus, People would be all over this guy as the greatest teacher in history. He's brilliant. If you look at the way that he combines knowledge and insight into the human heart and the ability to teach to multiple people all at once, people would be saying, this is the greatest teacher that has ever lived. And part of the parable this morning that he tells is going to demonstrate that because in this very parable, he is talking not just to three audiences at once, but he's telling three different stories that all come together in this moment, standing before the Pharisees, saying God has set his king on the throne. So the first thing that 
I want you to know about this story is this is a story about the world. This is a story about the entire world. Though it was told in the first century in Jerusalem, though it was told by this person who would later come to rise from the dead, but at the moment was relatively unknown in human history, this story is the story of the entire world. It is all of world history wrapped up into one half-page narrative that Jesus told. Secondly, this is a story about Israel. Most immediately, it is a story to the group of people that are standing in front of him, the religious elites and rulers of the time. It is a story about them, and and it is a story of judgment on the nation of Israel. But lastly, and this is what Jesus does, this is not just a story of ancient history. This is a story about you, and it's a story about me. This is a story that is enduring to anyone who would ever read these words You have to confront Jesus in this story. So first things first, this is a story about the world. And this is picking up the thread from what Daniel had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar 600 years before. That all the kingdoms of the earth are mighty in their time, but they all have an expiration date. And there's one kingdom that is going to be set up when God chooses the time, and that kingdom will, in the end, rule over all the nations of the earth forever and ever. And in this story about the world, what what Jesus wants us to see is the total overarching sovereignty and plan of God. So what what Jesus tells these people is, so there's this, this vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard set it up and put the money into it and expects fruit to come from it. And the story to the world is everybody in the world is a tenant of the one true owner, which is God. And you might be a great tenant. You might be a powerful tenant. You might, in your own time, be the lead person. But there is always someone greater than you are. This is an offensive story to the world because Jesus is making the exclusive claim in the midst and the shadow of the Roman Empire to say, you see all this? Tenants. These are tenants. Somebody else owns this. And somebody else is going to come and ask for an accounting of what has been done here. See, Jesus is telling a story to the world of its origin. That there is a God who created all of this, and he has given it to us to steward, and he is going to come one day and ask what we have done with what he has given us. That's true for Jews, that's true for Greeks, that's true for Romans, that's true for Babylonians, that's true for Americans, that's true for the entire world. There is an origin story that you are a part of, that the God of the universe is the owner of all things. And, And it goes one step further than that. And Jesus is the preeminent king over all the kingdoms of the earth. See, sometimes people say kind of crazy things like, Jesus in the gospel never claimed to be God. You know, Jesus never, he never comes right out and says like, I'm God, you know, in the gospels. But you can barely find a more major claim of divinity and ownership and power and sovereignty in the gospels than this story. You know, he says the owner sets things up and he sends his son to come and take account of the things that have been there. And it's, it's Jesus kind of like, and you're looking at him and you're going to kill him and he's going to rise from the dead and he's going to come back and say, where's the fruit? What have you done with what I gave you? In the story of the world, we're supposed to turn our attention to the fact that 
God actually, whether you believe in him or not, rules over everything. God created everything. And in fact, when Paul begins to discuss the beginning of creation in Colossians chapter 1, he says, it's Jesus Christ through whom God created all things. And all things hold together in him. And he is before all things. And he is the head over all things. And in him, everything is supposed to be given because he is preeminent. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees. And he's asserting to them that the true reality is something that has become a blind spot for them. It's not the most powerful empire in the world right now that gets preeminence. It's not the rulers that get preeminence. It's not the individuals who have the most power or the most wealth or the most influence. It's Jesus Christ who is preeminent over all the universe. But this is a story to Israel as well. This is a story most immediately about Israel, and you're like, you haven't even really talked about the actual story yet. <laughs> that's, that's the brilliance of Jesus. Is there so much background here that comes into this very simple story about a man who plants a vineyard. And in the history of Israel, they were almost always talked about like a vineyard. So if you go to Isaiah chapter 5, for example, or Psalm chapter 80, it will say something like, God took a field, or he took the side of a mountain, and he cleared it out from stones, and, and he put in terraces, and he planted so that there would be vines that would grow. And God did everything for this vineyard. He, he cleared out the predators, and he made the soil fertile, and he gave it everything that it needed to grow. And, and they used that to talk about what happened when God delivered his people from Egypt. So the origin story of the, of the people of Israel is not just the story of Abraham, but their identity was, we were slaves in Egypt, and God freed us and brought us to this land. So one of the things that they would have noticed that their heads would have been nodding yes is when you think about the owner of this vineyard in the parable, there's two amazing things that you see immediately. First, how much he puts into this vineyard. How much of his own time and energy and in the story his money go into this vineyard. Now, this would not have been an unusual thing in Israel, right? This, this was like the startup venture capital industry of Jerusalem. Instead of like doing a tech company, you would do a vineyard. And so for them, it would have been like, yeah, this is what people do. They, you, you could put your money into these agricultural plots of land, and you wouldn't expect any profits for maybe four or five years after you did this. So it's not unusual in this story for them to say, this guy plants the vineyard, he sets it all up, and then he leaves for a long period of time before he comes back. And so the first thing you'll notice is he, he puts everything that, that is needed into this vineyard. And, and it's the story of Israel. So at one point, God tells the nation of Israel, because they're getting kind of uppity, feeling like they're a great nation and all this, and God just reminds them, he says, you know, it wasn't because you guys were awesome that I chose you. And it wasn't because you were powerful that I chose you. And it wasn't because you had a lot of influence that I chose you. I chose you because I love you. That's it. That's all. And the nation of Israel has never in their history been impressive outside of the miraculous work of God. God says, I called you when you were slaves in Egypt and brought you out and made a covenant with you and pledged myself to you and showed you miraculous signs and fed you in the wilderness and brought you into a land and gave you laws and kings and a temple and access and my presence. I did everything to set you up to bear fruit. Now, what is the fruit in this story? 
Well, what God demanded of Israel was worship and obedience. Worshiping God as the one true God and walking in his ways. That's the fruit. And when they set up this covenant in the book of Exodus, it takes like one page for them to break the covenant. I mean, even when the covenant is being ratified, they make this golden calf. And Moses comes down and he's like, are you kidding me? We hadn't even got, the ink is not even dry yet on this covenant. And they're already worshiping idols. And it takes God, if you think about it, from the time the Exodus happens and he makes this covenant with his people, it takes 800 years for them to finally reap the judgment that they have been building up for all that time. See, because it's not just how much God has given himself to this people. It's how patient he has been with them. See, one of the things that they would have actually agreed with in this parable is God is patient and long-suffering and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Think about the way that this parable goes. So he sets up the vineyard and he gives it to these tenants and he sends people for fruit. He sends a messenger and they beat up the messenger. And then he sends another messenger and they beat up that messenger. And he does this over and over and over again. And these are the prophets and the people of God who are coming and calling his people saying, look at this beautiful vineyard we have. Look at this God that we serve. We should turn to him and worship and obey him. And constantly the prophets are beaten up and they are put in shackles and they're thrown in prison and they're exiled and they're killed and they're kicked out. And again and again and again and again, God sends people to remind them And God's patience over all this time is so that they would finally repent and turn to him. But then the parable takes kind of an interesting turn. So after he sends all these people, it says the owner has a son. And this parable is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And and in Matthew, it's maybe, we don't get quite the sense we do in the others, because in Mark and Luke, it says he had a son. One beloved son. One beloved son. And he decides to send his son to the tenants to look for fruit. If you are advising this person, you would have to be screaming at this point, what are you thinking? They, they beat all the people that you've sent. They have destroyed everything that you've left for them. They have sent them away, and, and, and they've killed the people that you sent, and, and you're going to send your son to them? This is not a good idea. This is a horrible idea. These people don't deserve it. They don't deserve anything else from you. But, but the owner says, I, I, I think maybe some of them would listen to my son. So he sends his son, and they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And it says after that that when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So it's almost like Jesus is saying, let me me give you a scenario here. All this happens. What would you do if you were that guy? And the people in front of him, I mean, they take the bait. Oh, he will put those miserable wretches to death. He will kick them out of the vineyard and all the other tenants, and he will give it to new tenants. Jesus has to be kind of standing there smiling like, do you get it? I mean, I love my favorite line in this story is in verse 45. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. 
sharp guys. <laughs> yeah. They perceived that he was speaking about them. So you don't just see in the story of Israel, you don't just see the, the continuous and long-standing patience of God. You see the certainty of judgment for those who do not give him what is rightfully his, worship and obedience. For those who, through their actions, have put his son to death, there is a certainty of judgment that is coming for those people. It reminds me of the story that the prophet Nathan tells David. Do you remember this? When, when David um, commits adultery, Nathan goes to him, and he tells him this story. And he says there's this guy that has a little lamb, and he loves this little lamb, and he provides for it, treats it like one of his own kids. And then there's this wicked guy who takes the lamb and kills the lamb. And um, what do you think we should do to that guy? And David's like, we should kill that guy. And, and Nathan goes, you're the guy. You're the guy. You did that exact thing. And in this parable, that's what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders. He's like, you're the tenants. You're the people. You're the ones who God over and over and over and over again has reached out to and been patient with and provided for, and now the time is coming for judgment. In fact, Paul talks about this in, in Romans. He says, don't presume that the kindness of God is him being okay with your sin. Don't presume on the patience and kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance. The absence of God is not the complacence of God. The absence of God is an opportunity to turn to him before judgment comes. So as Matthew often does in his gospel, he's not just telling us a story about these people so that we can be like, ooh, Pharisees are going to get it when in the end. The Pharisees are the wicked tenants. But it's an encounter that we have where we have to say, who are we in this story? Where do we fit in this scheme? Where, what's our life map onto in this story that we can grab onto? How do we have an encounter with Jesus? And we should have the same exact reaction as the Pharisees when they say, they perceived that this story was about them. We should be sitting here saying, this is a story about us. This is a story about us. This is a moment where if Jesus were here this morning, he could give this exact parable to us and it would apply to our lives because our natural state, outside of Christ, left to our own, is tenants who think that they are owners. That's how we all come. That's what sin does to us is our achievements, our merits, our gifts, the things that we have done, we have pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and we have made something for ourselves and we own it. That's the natural state of the human heart outside of Jesus' tenants who think that they're owners. We were getting all the cousins together before we left last weekend and the oldest cousin is like three at this point and there's five of them younger than that. So it's just this whole group of little kids. But there's something I noticed this time that's kind of interesting is they're starting to learn the word mine as a group. <laughs> and they're starting to get kind of possessive over things. It's kind of like in Finding Nemo with all those seagulls or whoever that just mine, 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 mine. That's like what you can hear when you're around. And, and it's like, we didn't teach them that. Nobody sat down and was like, when somebody plays with your toy, you shove them down and take it back. We, we've never had that conversation with them. And somehow they learned it. It's like it's ingrained in them that you take what you can, you look out for number one, 
And whatever you have to do to satisfy your needs is justified. That's just what we are like as humans. In fact, one of the people we were listening to this weekend talked about the the two main motivators in our culture today are self-sufficiency and immediacy. We are actually in a school, whether it's social media or broader culture or the people that we're around, that is training us day after day after day. You are self-sufficient and you should have what you want now. The, the, the phrase for us in our culture, in American life today, is me right now. That, sum, that summarizes everything. And we can dress it up a little bit and we can say, well, that, that sounds kind of harsh. Um, but, but even that response is kind of one of those things where it's like, so, you know, what's the goal there? Me right now. In preaching on this passage, Charles Spurgeon summarized the impact of hearing it on this level. The fact is that unless we are changed by divine grace, we have all refused to pay our great God the service which is due to him. He has put us here and given us this life like a vineyard for us to cultivate. But many have cultivated that vineyard for themselves entirely, themselves or their family or their friends, but just not for God, their maker, and sustainer, and savior. Now here's the wonderful news about this parable. See, in the story of the world, it is a story of imminent judgment. These kingdoms will fall, and the kingdom of Christ that he preaches about so much in the gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, will outlast any earthly kingdom forever. In the story to the Jews, the Pharisees and the religious establishment in Jerusalem will be judged just 40 years after this, the temple will be destroyed. It will not be rebuilt. They will be scattered. The Pharisees will be brought down. Judaism, as they know it, will never arise again. But in the third story, the story about you and I, there's this clause at the end of this story that I want to point your attention to. He will put, they say, he will put those miserable wretches to death, and he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit of their seasons. See, there's a great gospel theme in this parable. The nevertheless. Nevertheless, even though these tenants have lived for themselves, even though these tenants have lived a long time in their life before encountering Christ building an empire for themselves, that son that comes to the tenants in our story Even though our sins are the very thing that put him on the cross. We weren't physically there, but spiritually, we are as culpable for anybody as needing a Savior to die for us. That death counts for ours. It leads to this, by our accounting, kind of absurd conclusion that the owner comes back to the farm and to this vineyard and says, you guys deserve to die, but I'm going to count my son's death in your place. The vineyard is yours. The vineyard is yours. Nevertheless, there will be some that don't account their life as theirs at all, but lay it down for the Lord who sent his son looking for fruit, who came and died in their place. And we, if, if, if we trust in Christ, if we respond to this parable the way that we should, we find ourselves as those new tenants who are living our life no longer to take from what God has given us, but to give from what God has given us. We, we find ourselves in a place where we are spending ourselves now to produce fruit in this vineyard for the owner 
and the creator and the maker of all things who is God through his son Jesus. See, the Christian life is one of fruit. That's the beautiful end to this story for us is your life is going to bear beautiful, wonderful fruit if you will work in God's vineyard as you were designed to work. See, John 15, 8 says by this, Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified in you, that you would bear much fruit and prove to be his disciple, that you would have a fundamental shift in your thinking from I'm doing everything I can for myself to I'm doing everything I can for the Lord. From the shift of I deserve to die for what I have done rebelling against God to God mercifully sent his son to die in my place so that I can live for him. See, the fundamental shift in this, in this parable is not that we were not partakers of the first part of it. It's that through his son, he opened up that very last part to say, and some of you, remember he says, I'm going to send my son so that, so that maybe somebody would listen to him. Maybe somebody would realize what's happening here, and, and maybe somebody would turn and trust in him, and, and maybe somebody would start bearing fruit after all I've done and will do for them. And they'll realize what a, wonderful, what a wonderful life it is to live in the Lord's vineyard. In Ephesians 2, it says we were saved by grace. And then this famous verse that connects so well to what we're talking about this morning. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Just substitute fruit in there. We are his workmanship, created to produce fruit in his vineyard that he has prepared in advance. He, he has taken your life, and he has dug out a place, and he has put up a wall, and he has planted the seeds, and he promises to water it, and all we have to do is walk by the Spirit to bear fruit in our life, because it says he has prepared it in advance for us that we might walk in it. See, this is the genius of Jesus. This this, the application of this parable is so simple. What are you doing with the vineyard that God has put you in? What are you doing with the vineyard that God has put you in? Do you, do you walk around like you own it? Are you resenting the day that maybe he'll come back and claim it? Or are you taking advantage of what God has given you? Are you bearing fruit? Are you listening to the voice of his son and welcoming him into the vineyard and working to bear fruit for God in your life? What are you doing in the vineyard that God has given you? Let me pray. Father, we thank you of your wonderful grace for us, of if we were to just line out the things in our life, Lord, that you have done for us, our response is gratitude to you. It is thankfulness to you. It is a wonder that you would take people like us who, in the first two versions of this story, would be on the side of the people who deserve judgment. But you have given us an opportunity for life. So, Father, we give our lives to you. We give our hearts to you. We give our treasures to you. We turn everything we have to produce fruit in your vineyard for you. Father, we love you, and as we continue to worship, we turn our hearts to you. Help us to see the true reality of your sovereignty and your patience and your grace for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and the way we do communion is...